High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Dead Blondes. Where are you going? To Hollywood. Hollywood? Do you come here for excitement? I'm better than a human woman. Would you rather I be a brunette? My dress. Do you like it? I, I don't know. It's such a shock to see you dressed. I'm so alone. I'm so alone. alone. One question that I get frequently asked, especially during a series such as Dead Blondes, is aren't there any happy stories in Hollywood? Well, of course there are. They're just often slightly less dramatic than the stories of struggle of flawed people reaching for something that's slightly outside their grasp, or of wild swings between success and failure. And some stories are happier in some tellings than in others, and some stories are happy ones, until they're not. Today's episode is about a woman whose life, by most accounts, was pretty great, at least until it suddenly ended. She suffered no serious hardships during her rise to fame and time working in Hollywood. She drank, but it didn't seem to impact her life negatively until close to the end. Stories of some of her many romantic dalliances burbled in the tabloids, but did little to mar her perfect public image. An image that was, as one ex-boyfriend put it, quote, "...so proper, people thought of her as a nun." Her movies were mostly hits, 
Her performances were largely well-reviewed, and she won an Oscar against stiff competition. Then, she literally married a prince. Grace Kelly was a working movie actress for about five years. In that time, she made only ten movies. Then, she married the Prince of Monaco and went into early retirement from the screen, while continuing to be one of the most famous women in the world. This was a bad trade for Grace, who loved acting and missed it, but never enjoyed the game of being famous, and in fact, left Hollywood in part because she didn't want to face the pressure of aging in the public eye. A few years after her marriage, Alfred Hitchcock tried to lure Grace back to the screen, but a personal tragedy intervened. Then, in the early 1980s, she began edging her way to a comeback, shooting her first on-camera performance in 25 years. But before that project could be completed, tragedy once again got in the way. Grace Kelly's Hollywood story should have been an almost entirely happy one, if not for an ending, which no one could have predicted or prevented. That is, unless you believe certain conspiracy theories. Join us, won't you, for the story of Grace Kelly. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. She came from a very well-off, but not exactly high-society Philadelphia family. Her father, Jack, was the son of Irish immigrants who had built a successful bricklaying business. After winning a gold medal in the Antwerp Olympics for rowing, Jack himself made millions starting his own brick business that competed with the family business. Though Grace's childhood spawned the Depression, her father's business was essentially unharmed by the down economy, and his personal fortune hadn't been invested in the stock market, so he didn't lose anything when the market crashed. 
Growing up, Grace Kelly and her three siblings never financially struggled or wanted for anything material. And yet, her parents longed to be accepted by the old money ruling class of the suburb they had bought their way into. And that desire would long remain unfulfilled. Grace was an introverted child and an indoors child, a reader who made up stories in which she cast her dolls, assigning characters and voices for each one. In social situations, Grace was reserved and quiet. She was extremely nearsighted and refused to wear glasses, which made it difficult for her to engage with people. She could rarely recognize who was trying to talk to her. Grace's parents didn't think she was special or particularly talented. Her father was particularly critical and withholding. Long after Grace was famous, Jack Kelly would still tell anyone who'd listen that he thought his daughter Peggy was the real star in the family. Raised Catholic, Grace went first to a convent school and then to a secular high school designed for young matrons who are interested in establishing ideal, satisfying homes and in administering them efficiently and scientifically. After graduating in June of 1947, Grace had hoped to attend Bennington College in the fall to study theater, but due to bad grades in math, she had been rejected. So that summer, Grace began working on her parents to convince them to let her go to New York to study at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. Her parents were hardly supportive. After all, they had literally sent her to a high school for training in being a housewife. From their point of view, and based on their expectations of what a good 17-year-old daughter should be doing, going to New York to become an actress was the first step of a slippery slope to total degradation. But Grace Kelly had never had to accept no for an answer, and she wasn't going to start now. I rebelled against my family and went to New York, she would later say, to find out who I was and who I wasn't. Her parents had zero faith that she would succeed. Her mother figured there was no harm in letting her go off on her own because she assumed Grace would come crawling home after a week. Her father let her go on the condition that she live at the Barbizon, a hotel for women that had strict rules about things like curfew and male visitors. The Kelly family could have easily paid Grace's tuition of $1,000 a year, which would be the equivalent of about $11,000 today, but she was determined to prove herself as an independent young woman. Following the lead of some of her neighbors at the Barbizon, Grace signed with a modeling agency and immediately found steady, lucrative work in print ads and TV commercials. She finished acting school in 1949, having experienced nothing more difficult than a romance with a divorced Jewish professor of whom her family disapproved. Immediately after graduation, Grace was offered acting work at a summer theater in Pennsylvania, including a part in a revival of a play written by her uncle George, called The Torchbearers. Then Raymond Massey cast her in a Broadway production of Strindberg's The Father. This performance attracted the attention of agent Edith Van Cleve, who had represented Marlon Brando at the start of his career, and who soon signed Grace. It also led to Grace's casting in a small role in her first film, Henry Hathaway's 14 Hours. Then Grace began finding work in the new arena of live television dramas, 
She filmed dozens of these over the next few years, working constantly. And yet later, she would insist that she had trouble advancing in her career because of the way she looked. I was in the two category for a very long time, she would say. I was too tall, too leggy, too chinny. She insisted that she overheard one film director at a screen test say of her, She's perfect. What I love about this girl is that she's not pretty. And yet, Grace landed her first significant film role based on her face alone. Well, and also the fact that her skimpy film resume meant that she could be paid a minimal salary. Producer Stanley Kramer needed a young beauty to play Gary Cooper's wife in High Noon, and he was looking for a bargain. Jay Cantor, another Brando agent who was now representing Grace for movie and TV work, sent some photos of Grace to Kramer, who showed them to director Fred Zinneman, and with one look, the men agreed that they had found their gal. In the moment, both director and producer were able to overlook their misgivings, that Grace was too young to convincingly play opposite the 50-year-old Cooper. Her character is typified in a scene in which Grace, her hair and skin the same color as her frilly white dress, begs her husband's former lover, played by Mexican-American actress Katie Gerardo, dressed in cleavage-bearing black, to let Grace play savior. I've been trying to understand why you wouldn't go with me, and now all I can think of is that it's got to be because of you. What do you want from me? Let him go. He still has a chance. Let him go. I cannot help you. Please. He isn't staying for me. I have spoken to him for a year until today. I am leaving on the same train you are. Then what is it? Why is he staying? If you don't know, I cannot explain it to you. Thank you anyway. You've been very kind. What kind of woman are you? How can you leave him like this? Does the son of guns frighten you that much? No, Mrs. Ramirez. I've heard guns. My father and my brother were killed by guns. They were on the right side, but that didn't help them any when the shooting started. My brother was 19. I watched him die. That's when I became a Quaker. I don't care who's right or who's wrong. There's got to be some better way for people to live. In High Noon, and in future Grace Kelly films, there is the world as it is, with its violence and complications, and then there's a fantasy that Grace Kelly represents, of starting over with no blemishes, no faults, a totally and literally white slate. When High Noon was finally released in 1952, a year after it was made, it would become a massive success, grossing many multiples of what it cost to make and winning four Oscars. But later, Kramer would admit that Grace had been miscast, that she was simply too young and inexperienced for the part. Grace felt the same way, and she didn't feel good about her performance. Rather than let what she perceived as a failure get her down, Grace willingly sought out more training. She returned to New York and began studying with Sanford Meisner, one of the leading proponents of what some would come to call method acting. Unlike Lee Strasberg and Stella Adler's versions of the method, 
Meisner did not advocate bringing one's own personality and experiences into the performance. Instead, he taught actors to imagine and connect with the character's backstory. It was all about, as he'd put it, living truthfully in imaginary circumstances. Grace committed to this training for a full year, during which she continued to appear on television. Then MGM called. And though the luster of the golden era's most major studio was tarnished a bit in the post-Louis B. Mayer age, when MGM called, you still listened. It's a sign of where MGM was in 1952 that they were still looking for vehicles for Clark Gable, who had been their top star 20 years before. Mogambo was conceived as a remake of the studio's Red Dust, which had been a massive hit for Gable and Gene Harlow in the 1930s. MGM hoped it could be a comeback for Gable, and if they shot it on location in Africa rather on the jungle set that they still kept on the Culver City backlot, it would hopefully serve as an enticement to lazy, couch-bound former movie fans who are now mostly content to stay home and watch TV. As we've talked about before, the industry of the 1950s was determined to counteract the small screen experience by emphasizing the ways in which movies could be big. Big production numbers, widescreen formats like CinemaScope, and big epics, which, hearkening back to the very earliest experiments in cinema, served as travelogues, taking the viewer to places they otherwise wouldn't be able to go. And this was why Grace Kelly ultimately agreed to take the second female lead in the movie for the free trip to Africa. She was offered the opportunity when John Ford saw a screen test she had made for a part she didn't get. And the director, the ultimate Hollywood man's man, was impressed by what he called her breeding, quality, and class. Beyond offering her the part in Magambo, MGM offered Grace a seven-year contract. Still thinking she wanted to do theater, Grace bristled at the contract, which in typical studio-era style, gave MGM all the power to treat Grace like a well-paid servant. She insisted that she be allowed to take every other year off for movies to go back to the stage. And MGM agreed, because with the movie industry and the sorry state it was in, they perceived stints on Broadway to be good publicity for their stars. Mogambo went into the planning before Marilyn Monroe's top-billed, star-making performances of 1953, which is worth noting just as context. The blonde mania of the 1950s had not yet fully begun. One of the gimmicks of the remake was that, while Red Dust had pitted bleached bombshell Jean Harlow against darker-haired and comparatively natural-looking Mary Astor— in Magambo, the bombshell would now be a dangerous brunette in the form of Ava Gardner, rather than a quote-unquote trashy blonde. As in High Noon, via Kelly, in Magambo, blondness would symbolize hope, cleansing, salvation, and the possibility that a man could transcend the dirty, dusty world he's always known. Even as Kelly's character behaves with shocking impropriety, Magambo apparently consummating an adulterous affair. At the end of Magambo, order, such as it is, is restored. Grace goes back to her stuffy husband, and Gable accepts that his lot in life is to be with women like Ava Gardner's curvaceous, oft braless, itinerant war widow. 
the difference between the two women in Mogambo, embodies a 1950s dichotomy that would stoke Grace Kelly's popularity. In most of our previous subjects in this series, we've seen blonde actresses who were defined against a template put in place by Jean Harlow, who perfected a type earlier established by Thelma Todd. Marilyn Monroe, who was rising to fame simultaneously with Grace Kelly, is the ultimate example of this. Kelly, with her cool rather than hot demeanor, and her patrician, well, Grace, harkens back to an even earlier model. Grace Kelly became what Peg Entwistle maybe could have been, had she been a little bit more beautiful and a lot less unlucky. But a more useful comparison may be Greta Garbo, and not just because untouchability and even arrogance were common to each woman's allure. Greta Garbo got away with being, as one of her films was titled, a woman of affairs because her persona was so aloof and because her foreignness was so Scandinavian, so glacial. All of her sex was protected by a layer of ice. Alfred Hitchcock, Hollywood's greatest exploiter of icy blondes, who would make three films with Grace, would famously compare the actress to a snow-covered mountain that turns out to be a volcano. This is essentially the plot of Magambo. Clark Gable knows he can have Ava Gardner, but he becomes obsessed with Grace Kelly because he senses the heat underneath her hands-off exterior. Magambo is a good movie, and it has a great performance in it, from Ava Gardner, who, at age 30, was at the peak of her beauty and her star power. Gardner would be nominated for her sole Oscar for Magambo. Kelly would also be nominated for Best Supporting Actress, which is a testament to how she had begun to capture the imagination of the industry. It's definitely not a testament to her performance. It's Gardner who turns what could easily be a cipher of a character into a whole, recognizable, and relatable woman. Grace Kelly, speaking in a fine but shrill patrician British accent, looks lovely but can't bring depth to the film's emotional turns. Blame John Ford, who refused to do more than a couple of takes with any actor and who wasn't interested in mentoring a newbie performer. But Kelly's inexperience doesn't really matter in the end. To make this plot work, Grace didn't need to do much, aside from look like Grace Kelly. Grace formed an unlikely friendship on set with Ava Gardner, and a perhaps less unlikely relationship with Clark Gable. Grace seems to have had a crush on the King of Hollywood, which he encouraged to a point but was not interested in continuing the relationship off location. This sort of thing would become a pattern for Grace. Cast opposite a leading man old enough to be her father, or at least her uncle, she'd become close to them, sexually or otherwise. Grace would put her whole heart into the relationship, but it wouldn't last, usually because the man was married, or because he simply didn't take young Grace seriously. Don Richardson, Grace's college acting teacher ex-boyfriend, would tell one of her biographers that Grace, quote, screwed everybody who she came into contact with who was able to do anything good for her at all. But her girlfriends told a different story. She wasn't sleeping around cavalierly or mercenarily, they said. Every time 
they said. Grace thought she was in love. It was the men who refused to take responsibility for her heart. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. One man in Hollywood whose desire for grace was productive was Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock's three movies starring Grace would take her sexuality as their partial subject. In Dial M for Murder, she's the adulterous wife of Ray Milland, with whom Grace would have an onset affair, which unfortunately became public knowledge in Hollywood earning Grace her first mentions in scandal magazines like Confidential, and branding her amongst Hollywood's wives as someone to watch out for. They couldn't believe the hypocrisy of a homewrecker who wore white gloves. But Grace's persona, as far as the bulk of the movie-going public was concerned, remained untarnished, which was good for Hitchcock, who would have been happy making movies about nothing but the sexual fire concealed by Grace Kelly's pristine exterior. Rear Window and To Catch a Thief went further, putting the dichotomy of Grace's persona, the lava boiling under the snow, front and center. Grace turned down a chance to play the Ava Marie Saint role in On the Waterfront in order to make Rear Window, which would subsequently become the quintessential Grace Kelly role. Hitch was extremely specific about how Grace would be presented in this movie. He instructed costume designer Edith Head to, quote, "...make her look like a piece of Dresden china, something slightly untouchable." Though the story of the movie had to do with wheelchair-bound voyeur Jimmy Stewart becoming obsessed with the idea that his neighbors are up to something nefarious, the real drama of the movie is the sexual tension between a middle-aged, homebound man and his much younger, independent girlfriend, played by Grace. The real conflict in Rear Window is between Stewart, curmudgeonly repressed, rendered impotent by his injury, and the sexual threat of Kelly whose desire to overwhelm him with her desire and get him to accept her as a domestic partner as well as a sex partner is at once potentially thrilling and potentially castrating. Rear Window is a movie about a man's response to fear. He focuses on the scary thing going on across the street in order to avoid the scary thing going on in his bedroom. In Rear Window... Hitchcock was able to go further in his exploration of sex than he had before, thanks to Grace Kelly's ability to contain the danger of sex in her white-gloved persona. A director, Hitch said, 
can afford to be more colorful with a love scene played by a lady than with one played by a hussy. With a hussy, such a scene can be vulgar. But if you put the lady in the same circumstances, she's exciting and glamorous. Hitchcock also said, I didn't discover Grace, but I saved her from a fate worse than death. I prevented her from being eternally cast as a cold woman. In Spellbound by Beauty, his book on Hitchcock and his actresses, Donald Spado groups Grace with Audrey Hepburn as actresses who are able to play more modern women, meaning women who were probably having pre- or extramarital sex because their whole looks were so high fashion, sophisticated, and not vulgar. He also theorizes that both actresses were protected from being judged for their sexuality because they were so often paired with much, much older men. Presumably, the censors and everyone else looked at Grace being seduced by Clark Gable or seducing Jimmy Stewart and shrugged because of the assumption that with a guy that old, at least the sex probably wasn't that great for her. This theory is borne out in one of Grace's later and worst movies, The Swan, in which it is an absolute shock to see her fencing flirtatiously with Louis Jordan, who was only eight years her senior. Some of the older men against which she was paired in other movies were not unattractive. Cary Grant seemed more comfortable in his body in the 1950s than he did when that body was more perfect in the 1930s. And Grace and Bing Crosby have a sweet chemistry in high society. Although it was sort of unfair to Bing to cast Frank Sinatra in his swinging dick prime in the part of the romantic parallelogram originally played by Jimmy Stewart. But the Louis Jordan pairing gives you a glimpse of what could have happened had Grace ever been cast as the romantic match of a man her age. It would have been pretty hot. But to me, there's something else going on with the casting of young Grace opposite all these middle-aged men. And this became crystal clear to me when I watched The Country Girl, the film for which Grace Kelly won her Oscar. This was a movie Grace fought to star in because she saw it as an opportunity to show the extent of her talent. It does that. Unfortunately, it reveals that her talents needed more time to cook Grace Kelly in The Country Girl is a farcical example of that thing that beautiful actresses now seem to do as a cred-boosting rite of passage, de-glamorizing themselves to play a disadvantaged, unhappy, or just plain no-fun woman. Grace was cast as the wife of Bing Crosby's washed-up singer, who gets a chance at a comeback when a theater director, played by William Holden, takes a chance on him. Holden's character believes the sob stories Crosby tells him, which blame his wife for all of his problems. But the director slowly comes to realize that the truth is, it's the other way around, that the husband's neediness has sucked all the life out of the wife. At the moment of realization, Holden's character decides that he's in love with her. He tells her he can save her from the prison of her marriage. But he also tells her that he loves her for her loyalty. So he's not exactly shocked when, in the end, 
Grace declines to leave Bing, after all. Even dressed badly, with her hair darkened to a mousier tone, Grace looks like an improbable match for aged Bing Crosby on screen. Which is ironic, because off-screen, during shooting, they entered the second round of an affair that had apparently begun months earlier, before Bing's wife Dixie died of cancer. Despite the fact that Hedda Hopper had apparently warned Crosby that Kelly was a quote-unquote nymphomaniac, this time, the romance was serious for Bing, and it was Grace who decided to let him down easy when he asked her to marry him. She then resumed another previous affair, this time with her other co-star, William Holden, who she had first had a fling with on the set of the film Bridges at Tokoree. This affair was another badly kept secret, making its way into the pages of Confidential Magazine, which spooked both parties. At Holden's insistence, Confidential published a retraction. But in so doing, they correctly analyzed Grace's appeal. Behind that frigid exterior is a smoldering fire, the magazine insisted, adding that Grace had, quote, What the older fellows go for. She looks like a lady and has the manners of one. In the Hollywood of the chippies and the tramps, a lady is a rarity. That makes Grace Kelly the most dangerous dame in the movies today. Once again, there is an Oscar-worthy performance for the ages in The Country Girl. And it's given by Bing Crosby, who as the selfish, lying, delusional alcoholic star somehow transforms himself into a crooning Harry Dean Stanton. William Holden is also good, maybe a little too good, at playing a misogynist fool who styles himself as a no-bullshit voice of reason, but is easily exposed as a man motivated solely by wounded pride and his libido. Grace Kelly just doesn't have what it takes to match up to these two performances. She manages some clever line readings, but her co-stars create fully realized men whose whole lives are communicated through the ways in which they carry themselves and react to these situations. These men have that almost undefinable power to communicate layers beyond what the script gives them. At age 24, Grace Kelly understandably didn't yet have the tools she needed to pull that off. Of course she won the Oscar. Of course she won it over Judy Garland, who was giving what I still believe is the best female performance of the era in A Star is Born. Of course, there were whispers and rumors that Grace had somehow weighted the scales. There's a scene in the excellent Judy Garland biopic, Me and My Shadows, in which Judy's husband and friends console her about the loss by slut-shaming Kelly. The first and last lines you'll hear in this clip are Judy Davis playing Judy Garland. I knew they wouldn't give it to me. It's the biggest robbery since Brinks. It's a popularity contest, sugar, and you have burned too many bridges. <laughs> she probably had to sleep with Edward Arnold. From what I've heard, she would have slept with Benedict Arnold. Uh, I hear she's an implomaniac. <laughs> Only when you can calm her down. <laughs> <laughs> In defense of Grace Kelly, even back then, no one could fuck their way all the way to an Academy Award. As always, the Oscars reflect how the industry feels about itself. When Hollywood looked at the Best Actress nominees in 1954, 
Judy Garland represented a dying past when stars could be difficult and it didn't matter because their movies made so much money. Grace Kelly represented hope for the future. By the time Grace won the Oscar, she and Marilyn Monroe were the most bankable female stars in Hollywood. A fact that is itself an object lesson in the decade's swinging pendulum of sexual ideals. And this is where we get to my theory about Grace Kelly, the sex goddess under wraps whose passions were reserved on screen for older men. In The Country Girl, both men treat her like she's some magic crystal who can keep them from destroying themselves, if not guarantee that they'll live eternally. This is the most literal example of what she represented on screen, to the male characters within her films, to male viewers, and to the men that ran Hollywood. She was a second chance. To an aging male generation, many of whom, like William Holden, had married a woman before the war and had by the mid-50s grown tired of them, Grace Kelly was a dream of what they could get if they had a chance to try again. She would be a perfectly dressed, impeccably behaved trophy that they could parade around, introduce to their salivating co-workers and peers, and then when you got her alone, she'd do things that your wife hadn't even heard of back when you were dating. There's this gross Hitchcock quote where he talks about how he liked Scandinavian and English women and others who look like school teachers because sex should not be advertised. And a girl like that is apt to get into a cab with you and, to your surprise, should probably pull a man's pants open. What bespeaks youth more than getting off in the backseat of a car? Grace Kelly could make a man feel young again. Grace Kelly could make Hollywood pretend that it was young again. But the joke was on Hollywood, because Grace Kelly would have scant few movies left in her. By the time The Country Girl was finished, Grace was feeling extremely conflicted about her booming career. Most of her female friends and her sisters were already married and having babies. At not quite 25, Grace Kelly was fearing that she was about to hurdle over the wrong side of the hill. She spoke condescendingly about Hollywood a lot. It was a place, she once said, where many friendships and even marriages were often based on wealth and how relationships could benefit someone's career. I saw so many unhappy people, miserable people, really, and so many alcoholics and those who had nervous breakdowns. It was full of men and women whose lives were confused and full of pain. To outsiders, it looked like a glamorous life, but it really was not. Grace preferred New York, to which she returned in the spring of 1954 and began seeing fashion designer and noted international playboy Oleg Cassini, the former husband of actress Jean Tierney and the future personal dresser of Jacqueline Kennedy. Oleg followed Grace to the French Riviera, where she was shooting To Catch a Thief, in order to show he was serious about her. When the shoot was over, Grace was content living in New York and enjoying this new romance, and she was in no hurry to return to work in Los Angeles. MGM sent her scripts, and she turned all of them down. 
She wasn't afraid of anything they could do to punish her. She had a trust fund, so MGM couldn't even use her salary to blackmail her. When the studio finally put her on suspension for refusing to sign on to any of their projects, Grace essentially shrugged. When asked how the suspension might impact her financially, she said, I'm afraid I'll have to stop decorating my new apartment for the present. After Grace was nominated for the Oscar in early 1955, MGM grudgingly put her back on the payroll in order to make the most of the publicity opportunity afforded by the awards show. They didn't think she'd win. Everyone thought Judy Garland would win. Already feeling like a misfit in Hollywood, Grace had won the highest honor in her industry at the expense of one of the previous generation's biggest icons. Grace didn't feel great about it. She felt totally alone. By this time, the relationship with Oleg Cassini was frittering away. Grace wanted to marry Oleg, but Oleg didn't want to marry her. So it was something of a relief for him when the Kelly family forbid the match. And so she returned to her suite at the Bel Air Hotel the night of the Oscars, alone. It was the loneliest moment of my life, she later said. I had fame, but you find that fame is awfully empty if you don't have someone to share it with. MGM decided to capitalize on the Oscar win by casting Grace in The Swan, a deeply stupid costume drama in which she plays a princess who has an attraction to a common man while she's being courted by an appropriately royal match. But first, Grace traveled to the Cannes Film Festival for the premiere of The Country Girl. There, Olivia de Havilland's husband, who was a French newspaper editor, roped Grace into a photo-op visit to the Palace of Monaco. There she found herself charmed by the Prince of the Principality, Rainier Grimaldi. Every bit the eligible bachelor prince that Alec Guinness would soon play in Grace's next film, Rainier was smitten at the first sight of Grace Kelly. She returned to Hollywood to shoot her princess movie, and she and the real-life prince began a letter-writing correspondence. Grace was primed for this kind of old-fashioned, highly romantic wooing. None of her Hollywood romances had worked out, and even the single men she had been involved with weren't deemed suitable by her parents. She was actively worried about her advancing age. Recently, her daily on-set makeup call had been moved up one hour. She had come to understand how it worked. The older you were, the earlier you had to come in for makeup. By the time Grace sat down at 7 o'clock, Joan Crawford had been sitting in the chair next to her for two hours already. And Grace felt that there was something wrong with her that she was not any closer to marrying and having babies than she had been a year earlier. She wanted to fix that, she said. She was afraid of becoming just everyone's spinster Aunt Grace. After several months, Having decided that he wanted to propose to this actress with whom he had only spent 30 minutes in person, the prince found an excuse to come to America. They spent Christmas together at her family's home in Pennsylvania, and then Grace and the prince moved on to her New York apartment. On December 28th, he proposed, and she said yes. Before the engagement was made public, Grace was examined by a doctor to prove that she was capable of producing royal heirs. 
She told the doctor she had broken her hymen playing sports in school, which allowed her fiancé to buy into the fiction that his 26-year-old, internationally famous beloved, was a virgin. According to one source, Grace's family willingly paid the prince a substantial dowry. For the Kellys, it was worth any price to see that their daughter made such a good match. No one in Philadelphia would be able to look down on the Kellys as new money once there was a prince in the family. Grace would complete one film during her engagement, High Society, a musical remake of the Philadelphia story with songs mostly sung by Crosby and Sinatra and written by Cole Porter. This is my favorite Grace Kelly movie. In fact, it's the only non-Hitchcock Grace Kelly movie in which I think she is both appropriately cast and able to elevate the material rather than have it expose her limitations. With this, and To Catch a Thief, she shows a gift for light comedy that makes you wonder what could have happened in the future if she had been cast in Katherine Hepburn-type roles or Carol Lombard-type roles. But it was not meant to be. After the wedding in the spring of 1956, the prince put Grace to work running the palace and playing the part of a servant to Monaco. For many years, he discouraged her from going back to work. Just like in Hollywood, in the palace there were rules and traditions that Grace didn't understand, but where she had been able to flout convention at MGM, defiance wasn't so easy in Monaco. Grace gave birth to two children shortly after the marriage, and eventually a third came along, after several miscarriages. But even before the breeding phase ended, Grace had started longing for what she had left behind. She missed acting. Not Hollywood, maybe, but the work she had done there, and the freedom she had enjoyed. In 1962, when Hitchcock tried to lure her out of retirement to star in his film, Marnie, Grace at first accepted the part. Her husband had let go of his objections, maybe in this case because it was Hitchcock, but then Hitchcock was forced to delay the shoot by a year. And after a few months had passed, Grace withdrew. She was two months pregnant when she sent Hitchcock her regrets. Two weeks later, she lost the baby. Grace's miscarriages were not publicized. The palace released a statement claiming that the princess had withdrawn from the film due to outcry from Monaco citizens that they didn't want her going back into the movies. Over the course of the 1970s, the prince and princess drifted apart. By 1976, with two of her children grown, Grace accepted a position on the board of 20th Century Fox, telling friends she had done it because it gave her an excuse to leave Monaco four times a year. Finally, in 1980, Grace Kelly shot her first movie in 25 years. A short semi-documentary made with some friends, Rearranged was set at the Monaco Flower Arranging Competition, which had long been one of Grace's pet projects. She played herself. A rough cut of about half an hour was produced, which Grace brought to New York to show to some friends in the industry, including Frank Sinatra, Cary Grant, and some TV executives who told Kelly that they would air the film if Grace and her team were able to expand it by 15 minutes. Grace returned to Monaco ecstatic, and plans were made for further shooting. But it didn't happen. In 
1982, Grace had started suffering from severe headaches. She was stressed out dealing with her youngest child, Stephanie, who at 16 was behaving indiscreetly with boyfriends, such as the son of Jean-Paul Belmondo. By some reports, Grace was drinking more heavily than usual. In James Spada's biography, several people who knew her comment that she had, quote-unquote, let herself go. Definitely photos of Grace from around 1981 and 1982 show that she had gained quite a bit of weight. Her face looks bloated, especially under her chin. If she knew she was suffering from some kind of ailment indicated by the headaches, Grace didn't seek medical help. Then, one September morning, she packed up her car to drive Stephanie from one of the family's vacation homes back to Monaco. It was not a long drive, but the cliffside roads were windy and steep. At some point, Grace's car jerked out of its lane. A truck driver behind her honked his horn, and the car straightened. And then it sped up, and at the next hairpin turn, Grace didn't break. Her car went off the cliff. The doctors later determined that Grace had suffered a stroke behind the wheel and lost control of the car. The truck driver's horn may have jogged her out of unconsciousness temporarily, but she was either confused or not in control of her body. And instead of braking, her foot seems to have slammed the accelerator. When the car crashed, she may have suffered another stroke. Stephanie was able to crawl out of the car and flag down help. By the time Grace was transported to the hospital, it was too late for treatment. Her brain was unresponsive. On September 14th, 1982, the Princess of Monaco died at the age of 52. Her daughter Stephanie survived. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on. Or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. There was gossip that the stroke diagnosis was bunk. There was speculation that Stephanie, who was too young to drive legally in Monaco, may have been behind the wheel. Maybe the teenager and her mother had been arguing in the car, which caused Grace to lose control. Maybe Grace was drunk. Although, since it was 10 in the morning and her household staff had allowed her to get behind the wheel, probably not. Maybe because she was depressed and lonely and frustrated with her disobedient daughter and her unfaithful husband and getting fat and a hundred other things that came with aging, she decided she didn't want to live anymore and intentionally drove off the cliff. But probably not. If the stroke theory was incorrect, we'll likely never know. The only living person who was there was Princess Stephanie, who has denied that she was driving the car, but has asked that reporters otherwise respect the privacy of her last moments with her mother. And so we'll leave it there. Next week, we'll talk about a woman who was accused of being a Marilyn Monroe impersonator, who reinvented herself as a filmmaker. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. I apologize for my Grace Kelly and Alfred Hitchcock impersonations. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can find us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. For more information about this episode and other episodes, you can go to our website, YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes and rate and review us there. It really helps other people find it. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.